0: Open your Bibles to James chapter 3. We'll be looking today at verses 13 through 18. James 3, verses 13 through 18. When I was first saved, I was a 17-year-old boy, had not been raised in the church, and knew almost nothing about the Bible. I'll often tell people I, didn't, I couldn't even name the 10 disciples. I didn't know <laughs> anything about the Bible. Some of you will get that this afternoon. But I, I, I felt a deep need to, to grow, and I remember very distinctly just a, a simple prayer that I prayed over and over again while I was hanging on for dear life, trying to figure out this uh, Christian life. I, I prayed that the Lord would grant me wisdom and humility, that He would give me wisdom and humility. Those are prayers I'm still waiting on the Lord to answer, but they have been uh, sort of the thing which defines my life, this desire, this hunger to want to know what is wisdom. And it comes honestly because I, I had begun to read the Scripture and I understood the premium that the Scripture puts on Wisdom. It is so uh, critical that we develop and discern wisdom according to the Scripture. And one of my favorite passages I remember uh, all the way back then, even up till today, Proverbs 4, it says in verse 5, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth, do not forsake her, she'll keep you, love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this: Get wisdom. I love that. The beginning of wisdom is this: Get wisdom. In other words, the beginning of wisdom is to first, first of all, recognize you don't have it, that you need it, that is something that you need to pursue and something you need to get. It goes on, whatever you get, get inside. Prize her highly. She will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She'll bestow on you a beautiful crown. I love that. I love that language. I love that principle. The first rule of wisdom is to prize wisdom. The first rule of wisdom is to cherish wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is to get wisdom. So few people ever fully grasp that, and so few people then ever really set their sights on pursuing genuine wisdom. But this is, this is part and parcel of the Christian life. It is woven into the fabric of Scripture, and it certainly is the dominant theme as you read the book of Proverbs. In fact, there in Proverbs, you can flip back one chapter beyond chapter 4 back to chapter 3. And he says this in verse 13, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver. And her profit is better than gold. She's more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. So it doesn't matter what you're pursuing, what you're studying, what your aim, what your goals are in life, it doesn't matter. It does not compare to wisdom. It cannot be greater. No matter how well you define it, you say, well, I, I, just want a, I just want a successful career. I want to leave an impact on the world. That's not better than wisdom. I want to accumulate things. That's definitely not better than wisdom. I just want a lovely family and lovely children. That's not better than wisdom. Do you hear what he's saying? There's nothing that you desire, nothing that you're pursuing that's better than this. Long life is in her hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her pathways are peace. She's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold fast to her are called blessed. Wisdom has advantages. It brings enhancements and riches to your life. You need to grasp that. Wisdom brings these wonderful blessings into your life. And the first place to start in wisdom is to get wisdom. Now, as you hear all that, you read all that, one of the things that you need to understand, particularly as you read the Old Testament, is that when the Scripture speaks about wisdom, it's not talking about knowledge. It's not talking about facts. It's not talking about just reading more books. It's not really talking about education. What it's talking about is skill at life. The word itself is hokma, and it's a word that is used Outside of the wisdom literature, it's used in the in the Pentateuch, it's used in the Old Testament as a word for skill, particularly in technical kinds of labor and work. It was used to speak of the skill of metallurgy and working with metal and with wood. It was used of skill in the making of clothing and working with fabric. It was used in, uh, 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 for skill in terms of building and constructing things. It was used in skill in terms of sailors and how they navigate with their boats and, and even used in terms of administrators and being able to, to coordinate and manage and, and, uh, and take care of all of their departments. And so it's led some people to recognize that in the Old Testament concept, wisdom had to do with the skill of life. One person defined its basic meaning as this, the skill of being able to form and execute the correct plan to gain desired results. That's his basic sense. The, The skill of being able to form and execute the correct plan to gain the desired results. And when you apply that outside of some particular trade, when you apply that to the totality of life, that is essentially wisdom. The meaning was well established. And so by the time you get to the wisdom literature, by the time you get to the day of Solomon in the book of Proverbs, when they pick up this word and use it throughout the book of Proverbs, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about the skill of being able to live life the skill of being able to form and execute a plan of life in order to gain the desired results now when you get into the new testament it speaks about wisdom as well but it picks up on this same kind of theme it uses wisdom with the same kind of emphasis you may remember matthew 7:24 jesus speaking to groups of people who were in many cases rejecting his word but he gives them this little parable he says everyone who hears these words of mine and and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Do you hear what he's saying there? Wisdom, the wise person, is the person who not only hears the word of God, but does the word of God. He's not just a person who hears the Word of God, but he does the Word of God. He has the skill of applying the Word of God in all of its various contexts and situations and flavors into his life so that he gets the desired result. So wisdom, in short, is not just the accumulation of knowledge. It is not just facts, it is not just books, it is not just study, it's not degrees, it's none of that stuff. It's ultimately how you apply information so as to live your life. And wisdom ought to be one of the chief pursuits of your life. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Recognize where you are failing to apply God's Word to your life. Recognize where you are not applying it with skill. Recognize all of those areas where you need to to grow and expand. And it ought to be one of your main studies. It ought to be one of your core questions questions. What is wisdom? Where can I find it? How can I develop it? The The great question of of Job in Job 28, uh, verse 12. Where can wisdom be found? That ought to be our life's question. How How can I find it so that I can have all of its enrichments and advantages that the book of Proverbs describes? How can I understand and develop that kind of wisdom? Well, today, as we come to the book of James, James is here to answer that question for us. He wants to help us understand this issue of wisdom. He wants to help us understand how to discern it and how to develop it. And he picks up this issue of wisdom with the same emphasis that you find in the Old Testament, with the same emphasis that you find in the teaching of Christ, with this focus of wisdom, not in terms of facts and details and knowledge, but this focus of wisdom and how it impacts your life. A focus on the skill of being able to formulate a correct pathway and to execute a correct pathway so as to gain the benefits that come from it. He takes the same perspective and he speaks to us about wisdom in that sense. But James doesn't talk to us simply about the benefits, the, 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 the enrichments. He takes time to also contrast it with false wisdom. The notion that is all too common out there of people who claim to be wise, claim to know something, and yet by application into their life, you can see the evidences that they do not have wisdom. By simply looking at the fruits and the outcomes of their life, you have the ability to discern whether or not what they're spouting forth, whether or not what they're claiming is actually wisdom after all. James is telling you that there is a false wisdom and there is a true wisdom, and he's going to tell us how to discern it and how to develop it. Now, this is what he says, beginning in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, just quickly to remind you, this passage doesn't come to us in the midst of a vacuum. This is actually... This is actually James's continuation of a discussion he already started at the beginning of chapter 3. To some extent, it goes all the way back to chapter 1. He's using some of the same terminology, some of the same language that he used all the way back in chapter 1 when he was talking about how we use our tongues. And of course, in chapter 3, he sort of explodes into this context with a whole discussion of the dangers and the perils of a poisonous tongue. But he really has not spoken about so much where that comes from, as much as he's just talking about the potential damages of this kind of poisonous speech. But now he wants to delve deeper into that. He wants to take us beyond the dangers and the destructive forces of the tongue, and he wants to to go beyond those outward effects to help us understand where all of this springs from. Where, where all this spouting forth of the tongue and, and, and on one hand praising God, the other hand cursing a brother, where all of that comes from, the fountain of your lips. In fact, he, he won't even end here. He'll go on into chapter four discussing this issue of quarreling and fighting and, and all of this kind of abusive speech. But right at the heart of it all, he wants to explain to us the, where, where the source and the fountain of all of this is. And he explains it in terms of wisdom, of false wisdom and true wisdom, as he sets a contrast in our hearts and minds. So, to do that, he gives us these three simple insights into developing and discerning wisdom three simple insights for developing and discerning wisdom the first one he tells us in verse 13 is that wisdom is proven by its behavior wisdom is proven by its behavior he begins with that basic section a se- a question who is wise and who is understanding among you it seems that some in the in the churches to whom he's writing were making that claim some of these Christians were claiming to be wise and understanding. They were boasting about their wisdom and understanding. And you may remember that James started this whole section back in chapter uh, 3, verse 1, by giving a warning to those who wanted to be teachers. There were certain people, it would appear, who were propagating themselves, who were promoting themselves, who were putting themselves forward Who consider themselves to be leaders, who consider themselves to be teachers, who consider themselves to be wise. And yet, as James has already pointed out, they struggled with their tongue. They had a hard time putting a guard on it. They had a hard time keeping it. They kept scorching people around them with it. And now he wants to explain to us exactly why. He takes aim at these people who thought of themselves as wise. You consider yourself wise, he says. You, you want to be the one who claims to have insight and expertise? Well, I have one simple test prove it by your good behavior, prove it by your conduct. By his good conduct, he says in verse 13, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And he's making his basic point is for the whole section here that wisdom will be manifested by the way a person conducts their life. It'll be manifested whether or not they truly possess wisdom or whether they possess true wisdom, we might say. And this is the basic idea that you find throughout the Old Testament, throughout the wisdom literature. Ultimately, your claim to wisdom is proven by how you live out your life. How do you apply the skill to living? And the emphasis is not what you think. Some people would think when you're saying all of that, they're, that, that you're really talking about outward success, that, that their material success would point to their wisdom, that their bank account would point to their wisdom, that their accomplishments and their achievements and their degrees and, and their, their knowledge and all that other stuff would point to their wisdom. But James puts his emphasis somewhere completely different. He puts his emphasis on meekness. One basic word. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom is going to be seen in your lifestyle, in your skill of living, in your works, but they're going to be works that are characterized by a certain kind of Meekness. The word is proutase in Greek. It generally has the idea of gentleness in contrast to harshness. BDAG, one of the uh, most respected lexicons on the Greek language from the New Testament, defines the word this way, the quality of not being overly impressed by one's own self-importance. The quality of not being overly impressed by one's self-importance. This is what Paul's talking about. This is a person who's wise, but not in his own eyes. He's wise, but doesn't claim wisdom. The quality of not being overly impressed by one's own self-importance. He's not caught up in a sense of self-centeredness. He's not caught up in a sense of self-importance. This wise person is not always putting himself or herself forward. They're not self-promoting. They're not thrusting their thoughts and their opinions out there. They're not always inserting themselves everywhere. They're not assuming and presuming that everyone wants to hear from them. Perhaps that's not what you expect for the person who's wise... Perhaps you would expect them to always be promoting their opinion, to be always sharing their thoughts. Perhaps you expect them to always be presenting themselves as the expert. After all, they are the wise person. They're supposedly the one who has wisdom. So if they have wisdom, they would want to make sure that everyone hears their wisdom. And so they're constantly spouting off and they think that they have answers to almost everything and they claim to be kind of experts about everything. And that kind of attitude, James is saying, doesn't reveal wisdom at all. That isn't the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of God has, at its very core, an attitude of meekness. James evaluates things differently. We should evaluate things differently. The wise person, the person with true understanding, is going to be characterized by a certain kind of meek behavior that is not self promoting, that is not self important, and consequently, they're not always inserting themselves. And I might add, they are not easily offended. They have such a low view of themselves that when they are treated low by others, they're not shocked. They're not scandalized. They're not offended. When they're overlooked, when they're sidelined, when their opinion and insight is not solicited, they're not offended. They don't go on the attack. They don't run off and pout because their life is characterized by meekness. Now that one principle right there, that one principle immediately immediately gives you tremendous insight into wisdom. If you could simply grasp the fact that wisdom is going to be observable in someone's behavior, and that behavior is going to be overall defined by a kind of meekness that isn't isn't, um, characterized by self-importance, then you immediately can begin to discern wisdom, true wisdom. From false wisdom. And so James is saying, so you think you're wise. You claim to be wise. You think you have all the answers. You think that you ought to be the one who is being consulted. You, you think that you ought to be the one who's looked at as the expert. Then let me look at your life. Let me see how you bear wrongs. Let me see how you exemplify love that doesn't always seek its own way. You claim to have wisdom. Then show me what kind of wisdom do you have? Is it wisdom from the world or is it wisdom from God? Is is it ultimately true wisdom or false wisdom? Because the burden of proof is in the way you live out your life. Is it arrogant? Is it self-promoting? Is it full of selfish ambition? Is it a spirit and an attitude of... Of, of, of always wanting to be the one who is correcting others, of always being the one that everyone has to come and kowtow to, of always being the one who is uh, running off and offended, of always being the one that everyone has to come back and apologize to you? Or do you see a spirit of kindness and humility and meekness and unselfishness That's the evidence of the wisdom of God. Now James drills a little deeper into this for us with a second insight to help us discern and develop this true wisdom by explaining to us in verses 14 to 16 that worldly wisdom produces disorder and strife. Worldly wisdom produces disorder and strife. And he immediately expands on this whole contrast, this contrast between the meekness of conduct and that which is false wisdom. By presenting to us in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is the opposite, obviously, of the meekness of that characterizes true wisdom. This is a wisdom that is bitter, and it's jealous, and it's selfish, and it's self-promoting. And James says, look, if that is your brand, if that is what characterizes you, if that's how people know you, and people interact with you, and people experience you, then stop calling yourself wise. Stop boasting, he says. Stop being false to the truth. If this is what characterizes your conduct, don't boast that you have wisdom. Don't boast that you have understanding. Don't boast that you have knowledge. Stop going around telling people they need to listen to you. Stop presenting yourself as the expert. No matter what your claim, no matter what evidence you have to back it up, no matter what your skill of of uh, Bible uh, in, interpretation and your your uh, accumulation of knowledge and years of experience or whatever, does doesn't really matter. That if you have this kind of conduct, you are lying, he says. James really gets to the heart, the motivation. He talks about bitterness or bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Where? In your heart. This is this is kind of behind the actions. This is this is what's really driving everything. It's in your heart. It's at the level of motive. It's ultimately where your opinions and your commentary and your schemes and your and your counsel and all that stuff. This is where it's coming from. It comes first of all from bitter jealousy. The word bitter is just really a word for something that that is undrinkable. Paul, uh, excuse me, James used it back in verse eleven. Whenever he was talking about two different kinds of water that come out of a spring, and one of them is is pure and fresh and sweet water, and the other is bitter. He was talking about the person who has a mouth that at one point blesses God, and then at another denounces a brother or sister, describing a person who claims to... To be representing God, but out of their mouth is spouting sweetness and bitterness at the same time. And James says that bitterness reveals what's truly the nature of your heart. So this originally described something that was bitter to the taste, but in time it came to be used figuratively of a resentful Attitude, a spiteful and vindictive attitude, a bitter attitude, a jealous attitude toward anyone who threatens your position or threatens your little world, anyone who would threaten your accomplishments, your territory, your reputation, or whatever it might be. Anyone who differs with you immediately becomes a sort of relentless enemy of you to be attacked. Anyone who differs with you is not just wrong. They become a foe, someone to be undermined, someone to be, someone to be thwarted. And if they show any signs of success, it fills your heart with bitter taste to see them advancing. This is bitter jealousy. Kind of a harsh self-centered attitude which poisons, sours your whole life. So don't presume that your so-called wisdom is true wisdom if it's arising out of this kind of bitter jealousy. And he adds to that selfish ambition, which is basically one word in the Greek. It's pretty clear the way it's used Outside the New Testament and even in a context in the New Testament, it has this basic idea of selfish ambition, the promotion of of your own agenda, a spirit of of rivalry and antagonism ultimately aimed at promoting yourself. I mean, this is the profile of Diotrephes in, in 3 John 9, who John says, likes to put himself first and... Does not recognize our authority. This is the self-ambitious leader. He was so oriented towards self, basic, basically promoting himself, desiring always that he would be at the forefront. He would always be recognized as the expert. His voice would always carry the day above everyone else's voice. He was self-promoting and he was unsubmissive. He wouldn't submit to John's authority. He wouldn't submit to the authorities within the church he resisted accountability he resisted authority he operated alone and above everyone else because he was centered on himself james says if you have such a proud self-centered loveless motive in your life stop arrogantly boasting as if you really know something as if you really have wisdom you're running around telling everyone that you have wisdom from God, but the character of your life is bitter and proud and self-centered and arrogant. Stop lying against the truth. And we know exactly what they were saying because he, he corrects them in verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. That was their claim. That that was their boast we, well've we've got we 've got the wisdom that comes down from above, and James has to say, no, you don't no, you don't. He basically tells them that whatever you 're telling others isn 't true it isn't heavenly. Wisdom, no matter how many Bible verses you know, no matter how long you have been in the church, no matter how many books you've read, James says, take a look at yourself. If you're acting with this selfish ambition and with this bitter jealousy, it exposes the falsehood of your claim. In fact, he says the source of your wisdom, the form of your wisdom really arises out of three sources. He says it is from, it is earthly, sensual, and demonic earthly, sensual, and demonic. Wow. Wow. You would think immediately when you read that, well, I mean, if anyone in the church were to ever rise up and begin to share something that was earthly, sensual, and demonic, immediately we'd recognize it. Not necessarily. Because you yourself may be driven by the same values. And so what they're offering to you is tickling your ear and appealing to the very same things you've harbored in your heart. But that James understands the source of all this stru- stuff, the influence of these forces. You know, we often talk about temptation and we sometimes summarize the teaching of Scripture when we say that the Christian battles in his or her life against the world the flesh and the devil the world the flesh and the devil well that's exactly what James is saying right here whatever insight whatever knowledge whatever counsel that you're claiming to have when it is polluted by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition it betrays its sources as the world the flesh and the devil. Whatever your claim to wisdom, when it is polluted by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it betrays itself. As arising from, first of all, the earthly, that's the world. That which arises out of the world's systems, it shares the world's values, it's governed by the world's perspective. Perspective. Or the flesh, which is what James says here is sensual. It's basically the word for natural. It is is used over and over again in contrast to the spiritual, In the Scripture, it is that which is devoid of the Spirit, that which in other contexts is opposed to the Spirit, that which in some cases cannot comprehend the Spirit or the Word of God by the Spirit, and and therefore it judges everything that is spiritual to ultimately be naive and foolish. So it is natural in that sense. It, It rejects the truths of the Spirit... As unworthy of consideration it 's natural or sensual, or thirdly, it arises from the devil, or as James calls it, the demonic, meaning that these are ideas that are demonically propagated. I know a lot of people don 't believe in demons, I know they don 't believe in a supernatural world around us, but Paul tells us that in, that the spirit explicitly says in first. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit explicitly says, you cannot mistake what He's saying, in other words. He explicitly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Listen to what He says. He's not saying they're going to depart from the church. He says they're going to depart from the faith. But within the context of doctrine and in the context of teaching, He says, they're going to devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. So there will be human mouthpieces. There will be material lips and vocal cords of a human being. But the ideas and the philosophies are going to be promoted. They're going to be planted in the minds of these people by demons. And there will be written about, they'll be sung about, they'll be preached and re-preached. And the person who's preaching him isn't necessarily demon-filled, but if you trace back the heritage of his philosophies and his ideas, you'll find their source in Satan. So James is saying your boast and your claim for wisdom that's from above is false. And you're lying against the truth because you are so filled and polluted by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that nothing you're doing could be true wisdom. Now James is no fool. He he understands that when you say something like that to one of these people that they're going to immediately deny it. I mean, who's who's going to stand up and say, "Well, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm selfish." I'm really, I'm really working out of bitterness. No one's going to say that. In their smug pride, they'll deny that they have any of that stuff in their heart. In fact, they're going to continue their game of lifting themselves up by proclaiming that they're the only one who's the Savior. They're the only one who's the Lone Ranger. They're the crusader who has to speak the truth because no one else will speak the truth. And so so in a sort of self-promoting way, they're going to continue to present themselves as having sincere motives. James has dealt with these people, surely, though. And he understands it's not enough just to talk about their inner motives. You have to point to their behavior. And so he goes beyond just those inner motives to the visible product of their lives. And he points to the evidence of this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He says in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, you can't see it, it's it's invisible, it's kind of in the heart, but where it exists, there will be what? Disorder and every vile practice. So this is how you realize this false wisdom. This is how you discern this false wisdom, this jealous and and selfish and earthly and demonic and sensual uh, uh, false wisdom. Because in its wake, it will leave a pathway of disorder and eventually every vile practice. Disorder basically is a word for disturbance. Disturbance or chaos, or confusion. It will create tumults and confusion and chaos. BDAG, once again, this probably the most well-respected Greek lexicon, says it is, quote, it defines it, quote, an opposition to established authority, disorderliness, and unruliness, end quote. Lo NIDA, which is another well-respected lexicon, defines it this way, quote, to rise up in open defiance of authority with the presumed intention to overthrow it or to act in complete opposition to its demands, end quote. This is the spirit of Diotrephes, who resisted authority and demanded to be foremost, demanded to be first. So there's this state of confusion and disorder and, and a desire to overthrow authority that's left in the wake of this kind of supposed wisdom, this kind of claim to wisdom. This is the evidence, the visible part of what's taking place invisibly in terms of the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And as a result of that, eventually there's every vile practice every vile practice this this is kind of the this is what flourishes in the seedbed of what is left behind from these kinds of proponents of wisdom an environment where sin begins to flourish because no one is truly looking out for anyone but themselves it's not an overnight process but it's an eventual outcome every vile practice every kind of evil thing you may not see it as I said immediately you keep your eye on it though and these kinds of things begin to bud and sprout and spread and overtake your life your home your family your place of work wherever you Wherever you have this kind of purported wisdom that is suggesting itself as a pathway and people get behind it and they begin to follow behind that, this is what happens. So James says, who's wise? Show it to me. You show it to me. When you claim to have wisdom and the product of your life is discord and disorder and confusion and ultimately nothing of value, but ultimately secret sin growing in evil, that is not the wisdom of God. Well, James wants to then tell us what the wisdom of God is. He, he wants to increase our insight and our discernment by explaining to us, thirdly, that godly wisdom produces peace and peace. And righteousness. Godly wisdom produces peace and righteousness. If what he said in verses 14 to 16 is the evidence of ungodly wisdom, then what does godly wisdom look like? Well, in verse 17, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And this is obviously the polar opposite of what he just said, the totally different kind of wisdom that produces a totally different kind of result. And again, the emphasis is not on your knowledge and not on the facts and not on all of your opinions. Those who want to draw you into debates and wranglings just so that they can beat you down in some sort of argument. And let's be honest, we don't always know how to answer every person in every situation uh, we can sometimes be twisted around by, by someone's words and, and, and we get intimidated or we get sort of bowled over. Well, James is telling you, you know what? You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to know all the, the details. You don't have to be better read. You don't have to have higher degrees. You don't have to have covered more books. You don't have to have really that much more experience. All you really need to do to develop discernment and wisdom is just look at the product. Just look at the product of their life, of their behavior. This is what godly wisdom results in. He says it's first of all pure, which really... To be honest, really kind of just deals with the internal motive once again. This word basically has the idea of someone who is not defiled. They are, in other words, they are spiritually and morally sincere. It was used a lot outside of scripture to speak about people entering into a pagan temple when they would cleanse themselves and 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 go through some sort of ritual ceremony to make themselves fit to enter into a temple. So this is a person, in other words, who is not polluted. They're free from ill motive. Free from, no doubt, the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that James just talked about. So they're first of all, pure. But then he lists a whole bunch of words, a whole list of words, saying that this wisdom, which is first pure with its inner motive, then, with that motive, it is... Peaceable, which is pretty straightforward, is peace-loving, peace-promoting, doing things which promote peace. James will expand on this down in chapter 4 in the first few verses of that chapter, basically summarizing it by, by saying that you lay aside self-interest for the sake of peace. You lay aside all the, all the sort of idols of your heart to pursue peace as a peacemaker, and then James says it's gentle, which is a very difficult word to translate. It basically refers to the person who submits to mistreatment, to persecution, to dishonor with an attitude of kindness. Once again, Bedag defines this as not insisting on every right of letter of the law or custom. Yielding, courteous. Tolerant. Not insisting on every right of letter or custom. This is not the person who is, we would say, so fastidious and so control-oriented. They have to be in control of everything. And if you cross the line in any way with them, they're going to pounce on you. Loan says it's not quarrelsome but forbearing or avoiding severity in dealing with other people. Now, this is James says the gentle person is the person who is devoid of retaliation, devoid of revenge, and without malice. This is gentle. Next, he says this wisdom is open to reason. Open to reason. Eupathes is the word. It basically suggests an eagerness to believe. I love that. A wise person is a person who is eager to believe, or as we know from the book of Corinthians, they believe the best. They believe all things. This is the definition of love. And they're not eager in the sense of being naive, but they want to believe the best. And so So Lo and Nida, once again, they define this as being easily persuaded with the implication of being open to reason and willing to listen. This is the opposite of obstinacy. One commentator says, this is the ability to clearly define the difference between moral principle and personal preference and implies a willingness to learn from others and yield to them when no moral principle is involved. This is the openness to reason that comes with godly wisdom. You know, in the book of Proverbs, there's so many places that we could cross-reference wisdom in that passage. But these characteristics make me think of Proverbs 18 in, um, in verse 15. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge this is what they do they they recognize they don't have all the information and so they're eager to learn they're eager to listen they recognize when things get tense or things get confusing or whatever it might be they want to be taught they want to understand they want to to If you will, put themselves in your shoes and see things from your perspective. This is the, this is the wisdom that comes down from above. It has that kind of gentleness. It has that kind of reason. And next, James says, is full of mercy, which, which is the literal translation. In some cases, this refers to those who are, who are compassionate to the suffering. But in this context, it probably refers to those who are quick to forgive when wronged. So we're not even saying that they're just responding to perfect ideal circumstances. Even in less than ideal circumstances, they're just gushing forth with mercy. They're overflowing. They're full of mercy. And not only that, he says they're full of good fruits, which is obviously very general, but it's the the product or the fruit of what is good and pleasant, pleasurable, beautiful to those who are partaking of it and observing it and eating its fruit, the kind of wisdom, he also says, is impartial. That is, it's free of prejudices. It's free of favoritism and loyalties. It's governed not by the calculations that, that characterize the world, where you're always sort of assessing who's on my team, and if I scratch your back, will you scratch my back, and all of that. This godly wisdom is free of all that kind of partiality. And then finally, it's sincere. No pretense No play acting. It doesn't put on airs. It is genuine. In most cases, this is going to result in a certain kind of transparency, openness, and accessibility. Because people who are fakes live pretty well private and shut off lives because the last thing they want you to see is their duplicity, their hypocrisy. So everything is meticulously planned out. Everything is meticulously staged. Every detail controlled because the last thing they want to do is lose their image. But James says, godly wisdom, it's sincere. So what you see in public is what you get in private. And then James adds the ultimate test of observation. Verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We don't have time to fully unpack this, but he's basically pointing to a cycle. He says this this kind of wisdom sows, or we might say it plants. That's basically what he's saying here. But what does it plant? It plants what it harvests. Now, normally we would speak about planting in terms of seeds, but here he's He's speaking about planting full-grown fruit, full-grown harvest. And I think the reason he's saying that is because what you're planting are not just seed forms of this this righteousness and this peaceableness. What you're planting are the full-grown fruits that have been worked out in your heart and life. In other words, when you are one of these wise people you're not going around telling everyone else how to be wise before you've lived it out in your own life you have fully grown this harvest in your own life this harvest of of fruitfulness and then that fruitfulness is actually propagating and promoting all around you this environment of peace and righteousness it's producing peaceful Lives and peaceful homes and peaceful churches and peaceful communities and peaceful nations. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? A whole cycle where you see this beautiful wisdom as producing peace because it's coming out of a life of peace. And it's not just a single cycle because the harvest of that peace and that righteousness actually fosters and plants a new generation of peace and righteousness. And you get this environment that begins to produce harvest after harvest of righteousness. And that kind of righteousness flourishes in that kind of environment of peace. Or to say it the opposite way, the environment of self-seeking and pride and confusion and disorder from ungodly wisdom does not produce righteousness. But those who sow the fruit of peace and righteousness see a cycle of harvest for the same. So the key is to watch. You know, these kind of seasons, they don't happen overnight. This kind of harvest doesn't come right away. But you step back and you watch the overall course and pattern, and what you see from sowing to reaping, from planting to harvesting, is you see this increasing yield of righteousness, this increasing yield of peace. Now, it might be taking place in the life of a church that's in the midst of a society that's disintegrating like ours. It might be taking place in the confines of a greenhouse that is somewhat protected from all the scorching heat outside, but it, is, it has created a kind of seedbed where this peace and this righteousness in, is flourishing. And it just sets all the more in, in bold relief against the chaos of uh, leaders and, and politicians and judges and whoever it might be who are claiming to have wisdom but are doing nothing but sowing seeds of strife and disorder and chaos and everything around you and it's full of nothing but that which is earthly and sensual and demonic. But that doesn't dictate you. It only dictates you if you follow that wisdom. If you If you are beholden to that wisdom. If you saturate your mind with that wisdom. But if you saturate your mind with godly wisdom. If you surround yourself with those who are godly and walk in their steps. You begin to see this harvest in your life. You begin to see it in your home. You see it in your marriage. Peace. Gentleness. Gentleness. Reasonableness, yielding to one another, loving one another. You see it in your families, you see it among your children, you see it, you see it in your in your extended relationships, you see it in your ministry, you see it in your church, you see it in your place of business, and those that that work under you, you see it because you're not seeing in your wake discord and disorder and broken relationships, you're seeing peace. You're seeing righteousness. So you say you're wise. You you say you have insight. You say that you've learned something. James says, show it to me. Wisdom is the skill of living life to the glory of God. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Father, we are grateful for this message and for this word. It is so true. It is so right and it is so needed. We need wisdom. We need to understand it. We need to live it. So, Lord, I pray that you would let our hearts be saturated by these things. Let our perspective be permeated. Let us see the fruits, these precious fruits in our life that we could be identified by our good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. We have so far to go, O Lord, so much ground to cover. But we know that you are generous and those who ask, you do not upbraid them. But those who who come to you and they're not double-minded, asking for wisdom, you give it. That's our prayer, O Lord. Give us wisdom, we pray in Christ's name, amen.